It's the Airhead 247 Podcast. The Airhead 247 Podcast, powered by Wedgetail Ignition Systems, state of the art ignition for your 247 Airhead. Proudly made in Australia by motorcyclists who love their BMWs. By the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who invite you to ride inspired. And Boxer2Valve.com, the premium supplier for all your airhead replacement parts. Now, let's get this thing fired up. Well, hello again, everybody. This week on the program, it's part two of our conversation with Bob Hennig of Bob's BMW in Jessup, Maryland. Before we dig in, I'd like to invite everyone to write us with some of your answers to our list of burning questions. Of course, those are the things we ask our guests each week. We'd love to hear your take on these and share some of your responses in upcoming episodes. So, as you know, you're Mount Rushmore of the Airhead 247 run. Those four bikes from 1970 to 1995 that are your favorite. Your best or worst roadside breakdown and repair. What design element, if you could go back in time and change on the Airhead model run, what would that be? And of course, the burning question, what oil do you use in your Airhead? I should say right now, uh, Valvoline Racing VR1 High Zinc is atop our leaderboard. So we'd love to hear what you have to say on those or any other topics Airhead related. As always, the email address, airheads, add the S, airheads247 at hotmail.com. Now on to the program. Once again, Bob Hennig of Bob's BMW on the Airhead 247 podcast. Okay, we're back uh, with Bob Hennig from Bob's BMW for part two of our conversation. And so many great stories, so many things to say. We had to have a second edition. So, Bob, it's good to have you back. Uh, let's get started. Um, I, yesterday, I spoke uh, with Chris Canterbury uh, at, Bo- at Boxer Metal, and yep. he lovingly referred to you as Uncle Bob. Uh, <laughs> do you feel you have that relationship uh, with a lot of guys in the BMW community these days? Uh Yes, not only today, but for a long, long time. Um, there have been fabulous people that have met each other um, and have created friendships, even when you don't get to see each other often or talk often. Um, we've done similar overlapping, vastly different things in the same industry, um, but we all have the same passion at our heart and soul about doing something with BMW motorcycles and the motorcycle industry and the customers and the enthusiasts. And uh, Chris left a great mark and still leaves a great mark. He's had a couple of different careers, I like to call it, and uh, have nothing but fond memories. I was fortunate enough to visit him uh, at the first business he was running. I haven't had a chance to visit his current location, but that is only a matter of time. Sure. Excellent. Well, that's good to know. Um, And and I feel Bob uh, wonderfully warmly. Excellent. Yeah, it it was funny. You know, he. uh, I'm learning different monikers uh, folks have for uh, other folks who know each other uh, in the in the circle here. You know, for instance, he was calling you Uncle Bob and William Plam uh, was referred to as Willie P. So, you know, I've got some good nicknames now I, I can use going forward. 
let's dig let's dig in uh, a couple other topics I wanted to touch on. Um, and I think and I tried to, you know, since we talked last time, I tried to sort of clear the list and make sure we're not going over some other things again. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about customer trends and preferences uh, when you were still selling airheads new uh, through the end uh, of the model run uh, in the mid 90s there. I'm just curious uh, around that time, uh, sort of uh, when airheads were still new and being sold, what were you seeing at at uh, your dealership as far as preferences for customers on on particular bikes and styles? Um, well, I will share my opinion. I'll also try to intermingle a little bit of um, commentary, brainstorming, and facts derived from others. For yeah. a long period, of, uh, Bob's BMW uh, was active in a, it's what's called a twenty group in the industry, a bunch of uh, BMW dealers around the country that. Well, in this day and age, everyone competes a little bit. In the earlier days, we competed a little bit less. Um, we, for a while, just uh, Randy Police and his dad, uh, Tony, and myself were the really only members of this uh, group of 20 dealers, literally, that uh, had anything to do with mail order and the early days of e-commerce. <clears throat> so we may have competed a little bit more heavily there, but we talked a lot about customer trends, uh, the positives, the negatives, uh, manufacturer interactions, everything under the sun that affected us on a daily or annual basis. And we met three times a year face-to-face at different dealerships, uh, cities. Uh, we'd see each other's facilities. We'd critique each other's facilities. Um, so there's a real good understanding of how each other's work. And into that, of course, came the customer combination uh, conversation. Um, I think because... Not everyone in the group, but most of us, and I'll count myself there, were very active during the transition from only airheads to early K-bikes. That the transition from that and then airheads finally going away because the oil heads have been around for a couple of years at this point in time, starting with the R1100RS, the transition, in my opinion, was pretty smooth. Um, The effect I think it had on the airheads was not as significant as a lot of dealers thought it might be. I don't mind saying that I thought that there was that there was going to be a, a land grab almost for the last bikes available. I'll come back to that in a second. Um, but it wasn't. It was fairly smooth. People were already embracing that there were other models that BMW made that were fun, they were dependable, they were comfortable. Um you know, they were built by the same company, so the same engineering, whether it's mechanical or ergonomic, was all part of that. And, you know, a I think 80% of the naysayers, not the 20% that you might first believe would take place, um, <clears throat> had embraced the change already. The people who said early on that they would never ride one of those flying bricks that sounded like a sewing machine are now out there in the high mileage community logging hundreds of thousands of miles on their uh, K-bike. So the transition was smooth. I think the proof really came in the pudding by 1994, let alone 95, when it was, you know, factually announced by BMW that the end of the airheads was on the horizon and approaching quickly. Um, BMW's got to make the biggest uh, decision of their lives for a long time and say, how many do we build? What will the market bear? How many people want to have the last of the airheads um, versus the newer stuff we're making? And they built decidedly small numbers of 
R100RTs, R100GSs, um, R100GSPDs, R100Rs, the Mystic even smaller numbers. Um, the RS had already pretty much gone away. And we, our dealership did exceptionally well. Not By that time, in 95, not every dealer had been around for a long period of time. There were a lot of new dealers that had joined the group, so they weren't as familiar or um, in bed with airhead uh, communities and clientele and the technology and even servicing them. And so we pushed pretty heavily. I've got the very last uh, 1995 R100R in my collection. It's still in the crate. I'm fortunate enough to also own uh, 1992 serial number 0001. Um, so I've got the beginning and end of that. And uh, I think that helped us influence our marketing and our tactics for the end of the airheads. And we pushed pretty heavily um, to get as many of our customers to buy those bikes. Um, and we were, I don't know, remember the exact numbers, but we were a pretty significant uh, volume dealer for those airheads at the end of uh, the run. But people weren't exactly beating down the bushes. We had a waiting list for R100Rs uh, long before we ran out of bikes. Um, but only that bikes, the GSs, the RTs, um, and the Mystic, because it was really a styling exercise, uh, took a little bit more time. That's it. That, that's interesting. Let me jump in there. I'm, I, uh, obviously, then, at the time, the GS and the adventure bike uh, sort of had not necessarily caught on. Uh, it, it was still maybe not even its, in its infancy stages then as, as far as popularity goes. Is that a fair thing to say? Um, the... I think the tipping point in um, the adventure bike segment for BMW, I mean, not that the R80GS didn't turn the world up on its head. Right. But for, you know, quite a number of years, almost two full decades, um, the 80 grew into 100s in various iterations and some great paint jobs and some paint jobs that customers bought because that was the only color that was left. And manufacturers look back and say, maybe we shouldn't have painted that color. We would have sold more bikes. Yeah, like the uh, the purple one with the tire tracks. Oh, yeah, the road rash. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they were, at their core, they were good bikes. I don't think until the uh, extra power yeah. of the 100GS came along did that segment really hit its full swing. You know, the lightweight R80 uh, made inroads because it was lightweight and could go anywhere, but it didn't have a lot of power. Not that people weren't traveling around the world on much lower power bikes for for scores of years. But in this new world, they're telling you you can take it all with you as well. And the more you load on a bike that's got 60 horsepower, the slower it goes. Um, so, but back to the end of the run, there were very few leftovers at any dealer in 1996 by mid-year. Um, typically, it can depend on what's being built, who the dealerships are, what the colors were, all that stuff, a lot of variables. But I think that we could, I can honestly look back and say that there were far fewer R100 anythings available in 1996 as leftover new bikes across this country and probably around the world than had been typical of a model year transition in the past. And um, customers, I think the majority of customers out there 
that are looking to enjoy motorcycles for the sheer pleasure of the sport, whether it's traveling or weekend riding or commuting to work or whatever they do, hanging out at the local cafe, um, lean toward new stuff. I think it might not be the 80-20 break, but I think the the vast majority of the people that are out there on the new motorcycles, because they're enticed by all the new bells and whistles, the better power, the better brakes, the better handling, the better comfort, um, the newer designs and everything that comes with that, better suspension. And it's a smaller segment that continues to embrace the past. Uh, you see resurgencies on a regular basis. We're seeing quite a resurgency in, in vintage everything these days, I think uh, substantially brought on by the pandemic over the last couple of years, uh, whether it's two wheels or four wheels. Even boats are getting a bit of a, a comeback because it's sort of uh, things you can do all by yourself um, safely. And uh, But, again, I think customers uh, helped help the world, help the manufacturers, help the dealers make a smooth transaction. It wasn't a land run, and it wasn't out of control. Um, back then, if I could have gotten one more thing out of BMW, probably would have been another uh, putting into perspective of how many bikes we were selling at the time, another 10 to 15 R100Rs, maybe another five R100GSs. Um, and that would have satisfied the demand, you know, increasing our sales by maybe another uh, 10 or 15% in that given time frame. Yeah. Well, you, you brought up a good point there, uh, you were, or rather uh, alluded to it a little bit there. Uh, I, I'm curious these days, uh, you know, you say folks are maybe embracing the vintage or the past a little bit more. Um, what What is sort of the split and i'm sure it's a pretty big split but as far as you know what the kind of time you're spending with uh vintage bmws classic airheads what have you uh versus new models if you were and i know that covers you know a lot of things from parts to used bikes and things like that but how much would you sort of guesstimate uh percentage wise business uh you know labor, time, et cetera, are you still spending, uh, you know, catering to vintage Airhead customers these days? That's a good question, Darren. I'll you know, break the answer into three brief uh, replies. Good. Because there's, there's the sales of used uh, Airheads, stuff from 1995 backwards. Um, there is the servicing of either bikes we're about to put on the floor or that are already owned by customers. And then there's the support of all those tens of thousands of customers that we have across the country, up and down this continent, and then on other continents over the ocean. On the sales side, um, probably 5% of our sales, this is just a guess, deal with airhead BMW motorcycles. We deal with a lot of other brands of used motorcycles, and they... You know, there's just as much traffic for used Ducati as there is for used BMW in our shop these days. Um, and it, and all of this um, is like a roller coaster that you cannot control. You get opportunities um, on days you don't expect them. You get some, some weeks or months, you'll get nothing but a bunch of project bikes. We have plenty of customers that want project bikes. And other weeks, you'll get nothing but the best possible bikes um, that are in the marketplace. Um, and I'm pleased to say we have done a good job taking care of our customers over the years, decades, that we get a chance to buy bikes back that we sold five years, 10 years, 15, 20 years ago. Um, 
which is always our goal. I hate to see a bike go to California, but if they've got the money on a particular bike, they get the bike. Yeah, they, um, yeah. Keep it as close as possible because we get to care for them um, and get another opportunity to make them happy again. Um, sometimes those customers have kept them long enough and cared for them well enough. Uh, with our assistance, that they actually make money on a bike we sold them 10 or 15 years ago. Um, and now we get to find a new home for it that will hopefully take care of the next 5, 10, or 15 years. So that's segment one. But I really think that it's five uh, at various points in a given year or a given year out of a, a five-year window. Sometimes it could be 10% of used bike sales because <clears throat> um, there's a great demand on, you know, our 1100s, 1150s, our 12s, uh, all the K bikes mixed in there. We've got a, we just sold a beautiful uh, K100 RT from 1987 or 88. Uh, we just sold a very nice early K75. Um, so there's such a mix of bikes that BMW's had. It's fun. Um, and we just, we just uh, took in trade and acquired three spectacular uh, pre 1970 uh, twins, an R69S. Um, and two R50s. One of the R50s is one of the nicest bikes we've ever had. Um, I knew the prior owner for 40 years. He had this bike for almost 30 years, got it from the second owner, and uh, the guy we sold it to um, wanted it as an office display. Literally, He built this beautiful wall in his office uh, out of metal, and I personally delivered it. It was up in New Jersey. Uh, that was about six years ago. And uh, his business has not been doing as good over the last uh, couple of years. And he needed to liquidate a couple of toys. And we got an opportunity to buy back one of the nicest old airheads we've ever had. And it'll be on the floor in a couple of days. We just finished doing the detailing. I've got the story on my desk to write up. So it changes all the time. Um, we've got a, a, a very nice uh, R90-6 that just got sold that hasn't been picked up yet. Um, we just sold a nice R80-7. So there's plenty of them coming and going. Um, and no matter whether they're uh, a show winner or something that's going to need uh, a winner's worth of attention by a customer, we love handling them. What about uh, parts and, and service? Service. So the, uh, I'll dive into the service part first. We do everything. We work on any BMW back to 1950. We're capable of doing almost everything in-house, and a couple of things we don't do. We've got a couple of vendors we've worked with for decades and decades, um, our preference is to do some degree of refurbishing versus total restorations, but we do total restorations also. Uh, the only uh, hesitancy on taking in more restorations is that paint um, is always the thing that slows you down. Painters are just a pain in the butt. The EPA is making their world more difficult all the time, um, blah, blah, blah. And we think that we can bring a better bang for the buck spent for almost every customer by doing some level of refurbishment. Again, not everyone's willing to live with an 8.5 on a 10 scale when it comes to cosmetics. On the other hand, some people are quite willing to live with a 6 on a 10 scale if the bike is solid, safe, roadworthy, and fun to operate. Well, so and, and I think it depends on the customer's uh, intent with the motorcycle. I mean... If you've got a you know a ten out of ten or whatever you want to call it uh, point restoration, they're they're not as rideable maybe so to speak. I mean you're really going to baby them and um, you know I I think I, I'm going to agree with you there in in one aspect that uh, a, ref, a refurbished bike or one that's been quote unquote recommissioned uh, 
to me, has probably a little bit more value than one uh, that's, you know, been a 10-point, you know, concourse motorcycle. I, that's just my opinion. So, uh, look, I'm, I've been in that camp for 40 years. Yeah. Uh, I will always remember now almost a decade ago, but I've been telling people for a long time that once the restorer's checkbook paints something, um, you are as far away from original as you will ever be. Yep. Um, so people, I, I, it drives me crazy because you see people, 1975 R90S, all original, repainted black Imran paint, you know, and you just sort of go down this steep, uh, slippery hill. Um, the moment you paint things, you've restored it. It's no longer original. The moment you rebuild the engine, you've restored it. It's no longer original. But there's a whole lot of stuff in the refurbishment process because refurbishment is essentially glorified maintenance. People put off maintenance. Uh, yeah, there's some things that need repairs, but you can keep things pretty original still. And about a decade ago, a survivor uh, car won the Pebble Beach Concourse as the best car in show. And that was a new thing. That was a new thing. People yeah. didn't think that you, know, you could you could hunt them down, keep them as original as possible, make them run, you know, do that uh, maintenance and refurbishment. But what you were looking in, sitting in, and driving in or riding on is essentially as it left the factory. And uh, I love it because I think it has increased the values in a part of the world that more people can participate and more people will enjoy their machines for what they were intended and not just as an office decoration. Yeah, I have to agree with that. And, the, you know, the other thing I enjoy about an original bike is, you know, it does have the appeal somewhat of a, a, a time machine, maybe, uh, where, you know, it can transport you back to 1975 or 1978 or 1962 uh, when the bike was still original, it has the original sort of aromas and, and smells to it. And, you know, the word patina gets tossed around a lot. Uh, but that's obviously part of the appeal uh, of a vintage bike is, is the nostalgia and, you know, those great memories uh, from years ago. I first became a regular customer with Boxer 2 Valve a few years ago when refreshing an R90S. William and Edward Plam's video repair series, well, that was a go-to reference. It made that job and repair session much easier and really an enjoyable process. Boxer 2 Valve carries only the highest quality parts, mainly manufactured by OEM suppliers, so the fit is perfect and the repair, well, it's done just one time. Fitment and applications for all parts are clearly listed. To quickly find what you need, you simply enter your year and model of your bike, and you'll see only the parts that fit. Shipping, that's always fast, with most orders going out that day at 2 p.m., and shipping is available to all parts of the globe. Boxer 2 Valve carries a wide variety of premium special tools and maintenance items, many of those unique to their catalog. William and Edward and the team at Boxer 2 Valve are airhead fans, and as they say, with a passion for simpler times and uncomplicated machines. Check them out for all your parts needs, Boxer2Valve.com. That's the number two, Boxer2Valve.com. As I, and before I dive into the parts side of things, yeah. I mentioned previously spoke, 
I happen to have a fondness for the R100R. I've got the first one. I've got the last one. And uh, recently, it, well, it took almost two and a half years because the pandemic didn't help as much. Um, I brought in a beautiful uh, 1995 R100R from Canada, which has European specs. It's got bigger carbs, bigger exhaust valves um, in that beautiful black paint, um, pretty low mileage bike. And that's that just hit our sales floor a couple of days ago. Um, and as I said, it's a roller coaster ride. Sometimes you can't get a good used sidecar rig to save your life, and all of a sudden you've got four of them in the warehouse and one on the showroom floor. Um, just this past week, uh, maybe 10 days ago, we got a phone call from the daughter of one of our longtime customers who had passed away. We didn't know that because hadn't, we hadn't seen him for a number of years. He just sort of stopped riding, but he still kept his bike. His wife didn't want to sell it. And his daughter called us up and said, my dad's bike is in the basement. Um, it's a 1995 R100R. It's got less than 3,000 miles on it. There's a disc lock on the front wheel. We can't find the key for it. And are you interested? And we went, oh, my gosh, we'll come pick it up. Um, we'll do a, you know, a full evaluation. So Saturday, tomorrow, the bike will be waiting on a lift for me. We got the disc lock cut off yesterday. Um, and it's a time warp. The float bowls were spotless. Uh, the gas cap is stuck. The lock works, but it's probably seized a little bit in, in the gas tank. Seems to be completely full, so we're hopeful there. But the rest of the bike looks like it needs a a very thorough washing and detailing. And we anticipate that we'll come back to life quickly with um, some overdue attention. And uh, then we have to make some difficult decisions as to who the next owner might want to be. Would they like those original tires that left Germany in, in you know, 1994-95 when it was built? Because um, they want to take it to a few shows. They want to keep it as an investment. They want to ride it occasionally around their neighborhood. Or do they want to start riding as time for new tires and a higher level of um, refreshing? So, And we will probably document the pictures as it showed up because it's got a lot of dust on it. Um, and so each one creates a new story for not only us to do service with, but also on how we present it to a customer and help find it the next right home. Yeah, you know, that sounds like an episode of uh, Chasing Classic Cars with Wayne Carini. Absolutely. Wayne uh, had a good nose. He grew up in an interesting family. So uh, unlike uh, a lot of us, he was weaned on uh, hunting and collecting from a very early age. Yeah, yeah. Well, just just the fact that you get a call from somebody, you know, you got a lead on a bike and, you know, you show up and there it is. Um, You know, obviously, that's kind of the storyline on a lot of those television episodes. But you were going to mention part sales there and sort of uh, how how is that still continuing for you with Airhead stuff? So because this business started as Bob's used parts and specialized in used BMW parts and eventually uh, dealer inventories that I acquired, and there were probably 80 or 90 around this country that I acquired shops that had closed previously, right up to a couple of shops that were in the process of closing over a 15-year period. Um, And that led into importing new parts from Germany when the dollar was strong against the uh, Deutsche Mark, and then using uh, three different BMW dealers in this region as wholesale sources. Um, And eventually that led to us becoming a dealer because they couldn't keep up with our demand. But so part sales, uh, which all started out as airhead parts, has always been a big part of our operation. Today, we sell parts for every BMW made from 1950 forward, 
Um, we're pretty selective of what we do on a pre-war basis, but we stock stuff from 1950 and mostly 1951, but there's a limited inventory of 1950 because it's just one model or two models, basically. Um, and we ship this stuff around the country, into Canada, down to Mexico and South America, and on other continents because we stock heavily and we stock what a lot of our fellow dealers in this country and around the world don't stock. That's not to say we're the only source because there's a number of good sources for airhead parts out there today. And I think, by and large, all of us are sharing the marketplace very well. Sometimes we need something that we don't have in stock, and we get it from one of our peers that does, and vice versa. So there's a good um, sharing of resources. Um, over the over the last few decades, because in the early days of Bob's Use Parts, we produced a lot of reproductions of parts that BMW had already discontinued. Now there's plenty of people around the country and the world doing that, so access to things that we couldn't get before. Um, you know, putting a new old stock seal or gasket on your bike is not desirable. What you want is new seals and new gaskets. Um, so a lot of that stuff has come to be as a result of um, collaboration, intentional and sometimes otherwise. Um, but I think that probably um, a solid 20% of the parts we ship out stock and ship out are for airhead motorcycles. Wow, that's a larger percentage than I would have guessed. Well, there was a couple of years ago where we didn't think those numbers were accurate. We did a deep dive and found out that, yes, it was, and we continue to reinvest. We have about three or four reproduction projects that we are looking at now that uh, have begun to become higher demand than the industry will supply. We don't like the quality. Um, as an example, uh, the foot peg rubbers for 1950 uh, through 1976 BMW motorcycles, the rider pegs. Um, it's all the same design. Um, yeah, that sort of diamond stamp uh, rubber. Yep, but there's actually three different versions out there. Once upon a time, BMW sold them themselves, and they stopped, and uh, they didn't carry anything for quite a while. And we worked with uh, a rubber expert out there, <clears throat> and I had new old stock, which were hard as brick, uh, <laughs> That's how they came on the bike. They were While they were supposed to dampen vibration, they really didn't, and they lasted forever, um, which was not a good thing for a rubber part that's supposed <laughs> to soften vibration. <laughs> yeah. But so we sell, I'm pleased to say, the only dead-on perfect copy of the original BMW rubber foot peg for all those years for the rider. Um, and on the up through 1969, rider and passenger peg, unless you had a special folding option. Um what BMW and what most dealers stock, because BMW still puts the same part number on it, um, and some independents do, is sourced out of Germany. Now, they may be made someplace else now, but we originally saw them in Germany. And way back, we stocked them because it was a less expensive alternative, and we still keep a few in stock. Um, comes from a German moped. And it is a very close resemblance. But if you know what you're looking at, at 15 feet, you can tell the difference. Interesting. And they are of a very low-grade rubber durometer, so they wear out very quickly. What we produce is not as hard or stiff as what BMW once produced, so we found the happy balance. They have a pretty good lifespan. Yes, they're a little bit more expensive, and so we're looking at other options there where people have come to the market with a reproduction that really isn't up to the quality of what BMW once produced, and even BMW points are an example uh, well, they could have gone back to Bosch and just say, keep making these things, like the ignition coils for all the 51 to 69 twins, 
They let it go under the table. Bosch destroyed the tooling. And now the aftermarket's been making them. But in the early days, we actually had them, we would take old ones and have them rewound. So there's a lot of different ways you can fulfill demand and uh, provide stuff for customers. But again, this day, in this day and age, there are more good reproduction or replacement parts uh, than ever before for the old airheads for BMW. And that's keeping more and more of these bikes on the road. There's better charging systems, um, better suspension systems, and things that you don't see. You know, that can be inside. Even piston technology has gotten better. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because one of the other things I wanted to chat with you a little bit about was uh, sort of independent shops, product developers, uh, and also to a degree other dealers. But since we're kind of on that topic, uh, you know, you mentioned charging systems and guys like Rick Jones or Euro Motor Rod Electric uh, have a lot of great options uh, as far as aftermarket or reproduction parts. Uh, it is. It's been a pleasure to watch his business grow. Since its infancy, and we've you know been fortunate, we're we've been around longer than most, but not longer than all. Um, we've helped encourage people that came to us and say, "I've got a product design. Are you interested?" I said, "Not only are we interested, we would encourage you to make more of those, and we'll at least start out being your only or your largest customer. But over time, if you do this right, you'll have a lot of customers out there." Yeah, and uh, so, so that's encouraged like, so, Rick to go out and do new products and and fill the need for both consumers and dealers. Yeah, uh, Rick's one good example. Uh, yeah, and so, yeah, what has your relationship been like? Uh, I mean, you kind of, met, you know, answered my question there, but, yeah, you, you're saying you're uh, encouraging folks, uh, offering to carry products uh, in your line of parts and things like that, and obviously that's good uh, business for you, and it, it helps keep the bikes on the road a lot longer and is just a, a great thing for the community as a whole. So tell me a little bit more about working with some of those product developers, if you can. Uh, it's, it's really totally straightforward. I mean, you know, we can't, no one dealer, no one independent shop, no one enthusiast can have all the great ideas. Um, we get uh, pleased to say that I and my staff um, get pretty regular calls from people that think they've developed something that would be a great seller. And, um, it might be the 80-20 rule. 20% of the time, they're actually onto something that uh, we would like to see be supported by us and our peers. And 80% of the time, they've got a single bike or this one quarter of 1% part of the market issue to solve. And, you know, to invest the thousands or tens of thousands of dollars it can sometimes take to make tooling and bring something to life these days even with CAD and 3D technology, because um, making things one at a time with 3D technology is not exactly inexpensive. No. It's fast, and you can solve those one of problems. Um, is uh, a pleasure. You know, dealers don't talk as often as they possibly would benefit from. Uh, most manufacturers, I'm not singling BMW out here, when they plan national dealer meetings, they don't pencil in a lot of time for dealer collaboration. They want to control that uh, time frame for their agenda. Um, but at every national dealer I've, meeting I've ever attended or um, event because we want to cruise or we want to trip, motorcycle trip or something like that, the dealers collaborate whenever possible. We talk about the, the business. We talk about uh, for those of us that are in the environment of providing parts and service and support for the older motorcycles, not just the airheads anymore, um, a lot of old K-bikes out there, too. 
Um, we talk about what parts we can't get, what services we can't make. There's people out there that are reproducing special tools that you can't get anymore. So there's a lot of support. Um, and I think across the board, um, be they, even though we're not franchises, but authorized dealers and independent shops work better today than they did 20 years ago, in my opinion. Um, the relationships are strong. Um, the, I think the only heartache out there for uh, both independent shops and authorized dealers is that the one thing the Internet has changed it is, has allowed people that have those, that 20% that have the good ideas for product that can be sold, not all of them are interested in growing that business to the size that it might be able to be grown. And so they'd rather be uh, manufactured direct. And so they're not building into their uh, cost and retail structure either enough room or any room for another shop, be it independent or authorized dealer of any brand. So it goes not just BMW world, um, room to make a little bit of profit to put that part on your shelf so there's carrying cost there to sell it to a customer to install it on their bike or just put it across the counter and make a margin that allows you to stay in business. So there's some things that dealers can't stock, some things that independent shops can't stock out there. And, and that bothers me a little bit only because I think a lot of the dealers, a lot of the independent shops would like to be able to carry as much as possible to fulfill the needs of their customers. Um, yeah. Only to pick up the phone and say, hey, Rick, I finally got a request for one of those uh, high output uh, uh, charging systems. I know I don't stock one, but I get one, and there might be a difference in the margin. But at least that margin allows you to, to take care of your customer. You know, we have, uh, as a service example, uh, back to where we were talking, we have dealers that don't know how to work on old airheads at all but they've got customers with airheads and they've got someone with a transmission or a final drive problem, but they're capable of taking that transmission or a final drive out of the motorcycle and shipping it to us or to max BMW or one of a couple of other places that do component work. And we can rebuild that component, send it back to them and they can put it back in the customer's motorcycle. So every dealer, every independent shop can work together to take care of the customer's needs. Yeah, tell me about your impression of uh, Seibenrock. I mean, they've or Siebenrock, I should say. They've really done uh, a spectacular job in bringing, I guess, some uh, NLA parts uh, back to the marketplace and also developing uh, some of their own special airhead stuff. What was what's been your impression uh, of what they've done? Uh, this is a fun one to comment on briefly. I've known uh, Johan and Harriet, uh, the uh, couple behind Siebenrock. Um, since their very, very beginnings, because the very, very beginnings of that operation were the same uh, time within six months of when Bob's used parts started. So we crossed paths very early on um, over used parts because they had a used parts starting also while they were also getting into their remanufacture of certain uh, high-demand parts that weren't available for early slash fives, and they didn't do much with pre-70 stuff. Um, but uh, one of my fondest exchanges is that uh, way back, um, and trends change all the time, but way back, um, almost everyone in Europe had large gas tanks on their slash fives and sixes. And in America, uh, the toaster tank had an enormous impact, and a lot of slash sixes were sold with a small tank also. I could never keep up with the demand for large slash five and six gas tanks. And he couldn't come close to fulfilling the demand. Um, 
on um, poster tanks specifically. And we, during one of our transactions, I think we swapped, and there was some cash involved in lots of other parts too, about 50 gas tanks. Wow. Okay. He got, he, yeah, he got toaster tanks in good shape with good paint with chrome panels and logos on them, and I got the same thing back with big rubber knee pads and good logos on them and gas caps. Um, and, uh, you know, we talk about that decades later that we both could have sold the same stuff we just traded off if we kept it longer, but that's how trends work. And if your <laughs> yeah. business is ongoing, you've got to follow what the customer wants. Wow. That's, um, a, that's a neat story. So, so I've, I've visited them many, many times over the years. We've been longtime friends, uh, watched our kids grow up. Um, uh, they've done lots of right things. They've brought lots of things to the table. One of the cool things they've got going for them based in Germany is that Germany has some very interesting financial support programs for people to reproduce to the highest quality levels possible because there's TUV and a lot of other inspection processes that take place in Europe that don't take place in this country. We've teamed up with the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America to offer a special membership deal for our listeners. Now, before you think, wait a second, Darren, how much is this going to cost? Let's just stop right here and say it's free. This is a complimentary one-year digital membership for Airhead 247 podcast listeners. The MOA has a goal of adding 200 new members over the next several months. That's a lot, but I think they can reach that goal with our help. By supporting the MOA with this offer, you're also supporting this program. And let's say this again, it is free of charge. Visit 247.bmwmoa.org and complete the online form using the activation code AIRHEAD247. That's easy to remember. You'll receive your free one-year digital membership, and that will give our program credit for referring you. Or go to the description section of this podcast. We've got a direct link right there. Membership in the MOA offers discounts at hotels, a monthly magazine, great deals on roadside assistant programs, plus a fantastic network of BMW owners that share your passion. All this, plus you're supporting our efforts here with the podcast, bringing you unique insight into the world of the 247 Airhead. That website, once again, for your free one-year digital membership, 247.bmwmoa.org. Use the code AIRHEAD247. Thank you very much for your support. Let me well, let me jump in there. Do you know what I always have wondered? What does TUV stand for? Do you know? Uh, yeah, somewhere I used to remember what the acronym is, but it's basically a technical um, inspection process. Okay. Uh, and it, it, so, as an example, if an enthusiast wanted to build a short run of ten gas tanks that were not like Heinrich and not like Hoska, but he wanted to sell them or she wanted to sell them. Um, in order to be able to sell them in Germany, where they were produced, you would have to go through the rather expensive process of having them meet those TUV standards. Um, I've still got one gas tank. I've had three examples of this. I uh, probably should have kept all three of them, but um, it was like an enlarged slash seven gas tank. It was simple, a little bit taller, a little bit wider, but at a distance, it was hard to tell that it was bigger, but it actually held three more gallons. 
And um, this guy went to the trouble. Each one of them had the TUV stamping in them. Each one of them had the certificate that said they passed and were legal to sell in Germany. You didn't need that in the United States, but you did there. But at any rate, there were financial incentives for them to go down the path in Europe, where in the United States, you wanted to go down that path. You did so solely under your dollars without any um, state or governmental support or guidance. And that helped him get going early on. But he's always had an eye. Um, he has an architectural background. Um, he's always had an eye for doing things precisely into a high level of quality. You know, that, 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 that's an interesting story because it brings up a, a good point about some of the differences uh, in the United States and Europe uh, in, in two regards. One is regulation uh, and our views on regulation. Um, here, you often, I've, I've heard people comment, especially Europeans, talk about how customization is particularly an American phenomenon, uh, where in Europe, uh, even today, and, and you're referring to maybe a few years going back, uh, if somebody was developing a product or you wanted to change uh, something on your car, not, not necessarily in Germany, but maybe in other European uh, countries, there are strict standards and guidelines as to what you can do. And in some cases, you really can't modify uh, a vehicle uh, at, at the same okay. time. Yeah. And then again, at the same time, uh, you brought up an excellent point that, well, in the how the Europeans and especially Germany in this example that you bring up, how they're fostering independent and smaller businesses uh, at the same time uh, that they might have these uh, stiffer restrictions and regulations. It's just a, it's a interesting bit of dichotomy uh, in how our our respective uh, countries and regions approach those things. Yeah, I, I've always equated to here it's more under the radar. There it's up and above and within the radar's range. They want to know what's going on. They want to make sure it's done properly so that if people are going to keep older vehicles on the road, regardless of how many wheels they have, rudders, or wings, it's done to a standard that nobody has to be looking over their shoulder going, is this going to fall out of the sky? Is this wheel going to fall <laughs> off? Is engine component going to break and cause an engine to seize and cause a crash? Yeah. They're, you know, they're very safety-focused. Yeah, that reminds me. Uh, I I may be mis mispronouncing this, and your your uh, pig German might be a little bit better than mine. But it reminds me that I've seen this on beer cans before. The German purity law of fourteen ninety four, Rhein Heizenbot or something. It's called yeah. where you know you've got four basic ingredients you can brew beer out of, and that's the the German purity law. And that idea and mindset uh, still resides there today in a lot of what they do. Absolutely. In fact, you know, one of the things that, uh, well, we now live in a world where we get to embrace what Europe and other continents have embraced for centuries, is that you can go to uh, get on your motorcycle, get in your car and visit 11 different towns in the course of a day, you know, within a certain geographic area and taste a fresh beer delivered that morning. Um, in all those towns, will have a very different personality to them. Now, because we have microbrewing, that exists here. But for the longest time, you know, we had a small number of uh, U.S. manufactured beers or imported um, that weren't that fresh. I mean, one of the treats of traveling around Germany uh, in the early days for me was always, you know, I'm an early bird. So going out to get bread or coffee or something like that, you'd see the beer delivery trucks in front of restaurants 
They're there at, you know, 5.30, 6.30 in the morning delivering beer that was brewed the day before, um, so it is fresh today, and they'll be back the next day. Boy, that sounds good. Oh, it's, it, it, it's a treat. You know, I, uh, to tie into that, um, a sidecar that I uh, tracked down, this is a 30-year-old story, but I ended up finding a Polaroid picture on a table at a flea market, one of the largest in Europe, in, in Ulm, uh, one of the called Betarama. And, uh, you know, in a sea of 150 acres of stuff for motorcycles, all brands and cars and radios and you name it, I saw a Polaroid picture on a table, and there's a 10, 11-year-old kid there because his dad had walked away for a bathroom break, and uh, it was an old-style LS200 sidecar. Long story short, uh, came back, which is hard to do, talked to dad. He agreed to put it on hold for me, invited me to come stay at his guest house that his wife ran on the Mosul River, and spent two nights there exploring his collection, visiting the, the winery next door, and uh, getting up early every morning and driving about 15 kilometers to the next town to get a loaf of fresh bread. Wow, that sounds wonderful. And and that's, that's just how that culture operates. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's different. It's different, um, but it's good. It's good. So what else can we dive into? I know we're never Yeah, so you had met, you know, here's one thing I, w- I wanted to ask you about uh, was you mentioned Max BMW, and they've, I, I don't know how long they've been around, 10, 15 years, whatever it's been, but, and I think I know your answer to the, the question I'm going to ask, but, uh, you know, for the longest time, I would say, this is my characterization here, that you were one of the legacy uh, BMW motorcycle dealers in the United States. Uh, now, uh, Max is on the scene, however long they've been there. Uh, what were your uh, initial impressions when they uh, first started and how they've expanded? I know, obviously, it's, you know, you've got your customer base, they've got their customer base, you work together as fellow dealers, I'm sure. Uh, but, you know, were, did you feel threatened at all or were you concerned that, there, you know, here comes another big behemoth uh, on the East Coast? Um, you've, you've asked a question that is one I typically am very reserved about answering because I typically don't like to speak. I understand. But, but I have an answer for you. Okay. Um, uh, when they first came on the scene, um, they came on with big guns. Um, and it wasn't, uh, in the manner that most of us started our dealerships. There was, there was... Even though it was family-based, it was venture capital money, and there was a lot of it that helped them get that going. Um, they've done – I have great respect for uh, Ben and uh, Max. They've done great things in a short period of time. Um, they have built a loyal following in their area. Um, we work well together. Um, I don't mind sharing that we didn't always work well together, and I think the majority of dealers across this country in the early days might say the same thing. But they have grown, matured, uh, listened to their fellow dealers, engaged their fellow dealers in conversations, done the same with their customers, and the same with BMW, who they represent. And um, I think that if they are not already there, they will be there one day to be the uh, very honorable uh, uh, tag you attached to Bob's BMW when you said that we're a um, a um, um, legacy dealer. Yeah. Legacy dealer, dealer in good standing. Yes. Um, frankly, I think you need to be around 50 to 100 years to be actually a, a legacy of anything. But uh, 
after 40 years, I'm happy to uh, be referred to in that mindset. We've always been very customer um, experience focused since the beginning. And um, we've done, uh, in the last three or four years, we've had more positive business dealings with Max BMW than ever before. So I think we share the marketplace very well. No matter how much or how little any two dealers, even 3,000 miles away, might think they do or don't share customers, in this day and age, they do. The we share customers. Yeah. Um, it's fact, and you, you need to embrace that and, um, and you know, uh, help, your, help your customers get their needs. If you don't have something in stock, and you can't find it, then you need to help them, uh, you know, help direct them to the place that can for that particular transaction. If you can work out something with that other dealer or independent shop to get the item, whether it's a small part or a whole motorcycle in, and take care of your customer locally, then you manage it that way. But co- I've always believed that cooperating together uh, makes a market segment, regardless of what the products and services are, grow at a much faster, healthier pace and if you're fighting against each other. Well, well said, and uh, th- thanks for uh, answering that question. Let me sure. a- ask you something, too, that maybe uh, I don't even know if you're starting to think about this. I-, I-, I bet it's crossed your mind. What What do you see the future for the dealership, and are you, as, as the word retirement even come across your lips, are you looking 10, 15, 20 years in the future? Um. Uh, I have um, thought about retirement all my life um, because I'm not sure I'm the kind of person that truly would know how to retire. Um, I've always liked to be busy and engaged in more than one thing and doing things. So for me, at some point down the road, it will be what's next. Um, I consider myself to be one of the very fortunate people in the motorcycle industry because I have a true enthusiast side that is well connected pretty separate from the business side. The motorcycle collection and museum that I have um, affords me uh, um, escapes from the business side. I'm a very active rider and traveler. That too, I mean, I've got peers that I know hardly ever put a leg over a motorcycle, let alone go off and ride 100 miles. So uh, for those people, if that's their decision, that's their decision. I think you should be selling something more profitable like washing machines and dryers and, and ovens. <laughs> and that's a personal um, uh, jab that uh, may be a little under the, uh, the belt. Um, You know, um, I mean, let me let me refer, let me rephrase it this way. I don't I, I don't know if you've got, you know, family that might take over the business or if, you know, eventually when you're done with it, have you thought about, I mean, the the museum, all the motorcycles, you know, Bob's BMW, the name, what's do you know what's going to happen to it when you're not doing it anymore? Um, I can answer a couple of those questions easily. Um, our son is a professional barber, very successful. Um, his business is growing by leaps and bounds, and that's what his what he loves to do. He loves to ride motorcycles with his dad. Um, he grew up in a sidecar. Um, but there was never any great interest on his part to be in the motorcycle industry. And as parents, my wife and I did not push him to be in this business. Um, I was fortunate enough to make my own decisions, and so I think everyone should have that chance. Good for you. In terms of who might run Bob's BMW one day, uh, right now, that's already taking place. Our general manager um, is a superb part of our team. 
Um, I just introduced him to uh, seven uh, Delaware State police officers yesterday because they took delivery of four new bikes from us. And um, instead of us delivering them, they wanted to come and visit the dealership. They're about 90 minutes away. Um, and they had a great time. They were there for the better part of four and a half hours. And um, and when I introduced my general manager, I said, when I'm not here, he's running the show. And I said, when I am here, he's running the show. Um, there are more days I report to our general manager than he reports to me. And I like it like that. So he's taking a lot of loads off my shoulder um, as to whether he will be the owner of that of this operation five years down the road, shorter or longer. I don't know. It could be somebody from the outside. I'm honored to say, and I know this, I'm not the only one. Many of my peers have had people knock on their doors. Either the person, the timing, or the dollars were not right at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so far, we've said no to everyone for one reason or another. Yet at the same time, a good business person, no matter if they've been in business for five years or 40 years or longer, um, needs to be prepared when somebody knocks on your door and they are the right person and the numbers are right um, so that you can transition to the next part of your life and you can continue to be engaged with and support your customers and feel that they've been left in good hands. There you go. It's kind of like uh, I would... But I, I can tell you that I don't want to be there one day and gone the next. My plan is a lot different. One day, see if I get to make that come true. Yeah, well, and, you know, that sort of reminds me of, uh, you know, there's, uh, I think, a parallel here uh, in in some regard is, you know, you're, now we're seeing a lot of uh, musicians, you know, selling their, their music catalogs uh, for big dollars, uh, something you never you never thought you'd see or, you, ne- you know, uh, it would never have crossed somebody's mind. But now, you know, Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen and guys like that are just getting people are making them huge offers for their music catalogs. And, you know, at that stage in their life, it's hard to say no. You know, there is there is always something else you can do with the money you have. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's always someone else that would probably want the things that you have. And so the hard decision in life, or at least one of them, is when those opportunities come along, is it the right time in your life? Is it the right person that's going to take your things? Um, and is the right amount of money to allow you to do what you'd like to do next? Um, it's, it's not an easy decision. Um, I, I, different, I've watched a number of my peers in the last 10 years um, exit this business for a variety of reasons, some because they were much older than me, but I watched two close friends who are much younger than me just sell both of their locations in Oregon. Um, their goal when they joined the BMW family was to be in this business about 15 years, and they stayed almost 17, so they did pretty good. Um, I hope that they found a, a good next owner for their operations. Um, but even though they are very avid riders, they're not involved in a lot of the things that I'm involved in. Um, and so being able to walk away is a little bit different from them. Uh, I put this uh, very succinctly to, um, and my staff and general manager know this, um, that I not only don't want to walk completely away with literally a hundred BMW motorcycle collection and at any given time, six to 10 that are running that I ride. Um, I don't want to be like so many of our customers where they're traveling a hundred, 200, 300 miles to get service or to have a place to hang out that they like. 
So it's important to me that whenever that time comes, that yes, the dollars are right and, and the person is right as well. So that even if things begin to visually change a little bit because it's now long, no longer my business, whenever that comes to be, I still want to feel like I'm a welcome guest to come and have a cup of coffee and hang out with people I've no, known in some cases for 50 years uh, to get my bike service there, be able to buy my parts there, and all that stuff. So there's a little different connection for me than for many other people. Um, and I don't think that I'm going to wake up one morning and say I'm going to sell the whole collection and it's all that's a that that is intended to be a a, a longer drawn out enjoyable process sort of the reverse of how i acquired all those bikes i see okay yeah that may, that makes a lot of sense uh, and i li- i like your approach there um well said so all right bob let's get out uh with a few uh final uh, questions here. These are ones I've been sort of asking uh, all the folks that have appeared on the program. The first one, uh, and, we, and we touched on this earlier, we already spoke about your uh, sort of Mount Rushmore. Uh, the, right. the one uh, other question here, uh, if there was one design element or mechanical flaw or failure uh, in the airhead run from 90 to 95, essentially you could turn the time machine back, uh, go to Berlin and tell the engineers or designers, do not do this under any circumstances because we will hate you in the future. What would that be? Oh, so I, I had to write this one down, even though I could remember <laughs> that I was uh, 17 sheets of the wind um, a couple of days in a row. Um, <laughs> it is a design element as opposed to a manufacturing uh, quality issue. Every okay. manufacturer, no matter how good they are, will eventually have some part that a vendor or even themselves didn't make to their own standards, didn't anticipate the wear and tear that it might get, all that stuff. Um, and I say this not so much because I'm 5'5 five five with an honest-to-God 28-and-a-half, maybe 28-and-three-quarter-inch inseam. I say this on behalf of all the consumers I've been exposed to Um not only in the time that I've been in the business, but in the time that I first started riding BMWs back in the um, mid-'70s, is that the Germans uh, seem to like tall motorcycles. And one of the ways that Harley-Davidson, to name a very specific brand, has succeeded in capturing a large segment of the market, and the Germans will say, well, it's the women's market, but anyone with their head screwed on properly will say it's both a man, uh, men's and women's market. Um, the height of the motorcycle, especially for newer riders, and especially for riders that don't weigh 200 pounds, um, no matter how that's put together on your frame, is a critical part of the decision-making process when buying a bike. Most new riders, most less experienced riders, um, regardless of sex, want to be able to plant both their feet solidly on the ground. If you look at rider education across the country, um, one of the requirements is a 29-inch or lower seat height. They prefer 28, and they love 27. They want to set these new riders, learning riders, up for success. And that means feet on the ground, not tippy toes, not the balls of your feet. And so the one thing that BMW has done, and they're not the only manufacturer, is build motorcycles that are taller than they need to be. I get it about GSs. I ride a GS every day. I've been on my tippy-toes all my life. I've had GSs since the very beginning. Uh, lost track of how many 11s, 11.50s, 11 12s, and, and I'm on a 12 and probably 
sometime after my year anniversary, after this next knee replacement, I will be on a 1250. Um, I love the bikes. I love the seating position. The ergonomics all work perfectly when I am riding and in motion. And that's really at least 95% of the time. And I make my decision there as an experienced rider. But we see people all the time come in and they throw a leg over a bike and they go, crap, I can get one foot on the ground and the other one six inches off the ground. <laughs> that doesn't make people comfortable. And so it's not just the airheads, but airheads have been tall also. It's across the board. And we've seen plenty of bikes where they either threw so much foam in the seat that they could have carved a couple of inches out or a slight change in the way the frame was designed or where the seat attaches, and it could have been lower clearance. And and with the technology we have today with suspensions, you could easily start out with more bikes that have what they call low chassis and then upgrade it upon demand. But the one thing across the board I think all my peers will agree with that we don't get the factory to build enough of are the low chassis examples of the models where the low chassis is available. Um, because that alone, that single fact, will bring in more people to BMW than any technological advancement they can bring to the table. Bob, I have and, to... Let me jump in and say you're, yeah. that is a interesting and insightful observation. It's one I didn't expect. And what I find interesting about it is you, you're coming at this not, I don't want to say exclusively, but coming to it from a dealer's perspective, uh, from somebody who's selling motorcycles, who's probably seen and heard thousands of, of times people experiencing that same hesitation or trepidation when they're getting on a new motorcycle for the first time. Uh, how, you know, I can't touch my feet. And then I never really thought about that with the Harley Davidson as well. I have an old Sportster, uh, among a couple other bikes. And it's funny when I get on that thing, uh, sometimes it feels like I'm on a mini bike and my legs cramp up and, you know, I'm not used to that ultra low seating position. And I, I had just never really thought now I'm six feet, 200 pounds. So, you know, that's not been a consideration for me. No, and it, and it, you know, when having this conversation with not only BMW designers, but uh, our customers, you know, you could line up 10 men, 10 women, 100 men, 100 women that are all the same height, all within five pounds each of each other, but they're still going to have different ergonomics. Some will be long in the legs, some will be long in the torso, some bend better from the waist down, some are more flexible up above, some have neck issues, back issues, feet issues, you name it. So ergonomics are really one of the critical factors in people being able to buy a piece of living room furniture, let alone a motorcycle, that they want to get on again after a two-hour ride to breakfast and see how far it is to the next stop, which might be lunch. And at the end of the day, come back and say, boy, I can't wait to do that again. This is just the best fitting running motorcycle. But it starts with fit. Um, we And it's not just the people that are short, ergonomics play a big role. We have lots of customers that come in and they start talking about GSs, <clears throat> GS adventures, and you give them enough time and, and enough rope and enough opportunities and a surprisingly large number of people that you thought might have ended up on a GS adventure end up on a standard GS because the extra large gas tank and the fact that it comes with some of that luggage you could put on either bike weren't the deciding factors. The deciding factors was which one I was most comfortable on. Mm -hmm. As some of these people at six foot three and 225 pounds fit a regular GS standard chassis better than they do the adventure. 
And we've even had a few fairly tall people that have said, you know what, <clears throat> I've been riding Harley Davidson's all my life, or I've ridden these Japanese bikes all my life, <clears throat> and I was a cruiser rider, and I've gotten used to this foot-planted thing with my knees pretty well bent, and, and I'm not cramped up on this uh, low-chassis GS or this low-chassis RT, and I want that model. Yeah. Right. So, again, helping people spend enough time there to figure out what it is is where eventually we came back to the table with BMW and said, what we want is what the customer wants. And because we can't deliver what the customer wants, we're selling less bikes. Wow. Well, as I said, an interesting and insightful answer there. All right, Bob, uh, your best or worst roadside repair uh, and or breakdown. So this would be a case where, uh, you know, your motorcycle broke down somewhere and you had just a spectacular MacGyver moment and, you know, were able to get it back and running or uh, it was just a complete catastrophic failure. Um, I am pleased to say that I have helped a lot more people out that were on the side of the road, then I've had to deal with these issues myself. I bet. But, but I've been riding motorcycles regularly since 1969. Um, anyone that says they've never had a breakdown, including running out of gas, uh, has a faulty memory, I think. Um, I uh, have a problem solver. Um, I think that's a large part of what our business does. Um, and we offer a lot of support to our customers in this area. So, by the time I had my first uh, roadside incident, my mind was already in a how do you solve this problem situation. Um, one of my best is uh, a lightweight but amusing. Um, I don't think I've ever had a worse, but I've had a couple that took a decidedly large large amount of my time, either in one day or over a couple of days, to solve because that's what it takes sometimes. But the, the I'll, and I'll try to squeeze in at least two of these stories. Yeah, okay. The first one, um, this was probably 26 years ago. Pardon me, let me silence this other phone. That's okay. Um, as I said earlier, our son, who is now 31, grew up in a sidecar, or one of a couple of sidecars. And so often there would be an afternoon, I'd like to go out riding, my wife wants to do something completely different, and we've got a three- or four-year-old son that has already he did his first weekend trip when he was six months old. So Sam and I are going riding. See you later. And um, we were out on roads that were very familiar. Uh, I was probably staying within 25 miles of home the whole, whole afternoon. And uh, I'm on this uh, K100RS, very, very custom EML sidecar rig. Uh, it's one of a kind. Um, early uh, high-performance sidecar, torsion bar suspension underneath it, fabulous. And, and one of my amusements uh, back then, is I can't do it now because uh, I don't have a little kid in the sidecar, but uh, we'd go out and uh, aggressively play on the back roads in and around uh, home and occasionally get to pass some uh, younger riders on their uh, other brand motorcycles in the turns, and the last thing they would see would be a little kid waving at them from the sidecar. Um but on that particular afternoon, unbeknownst to me, my fuel gauge stopped working. And I'm um, coming up this hill, and all of a sudden, the bike stops sputtering or starts sputtering. And I am just able to coast into a driveway. And thankfully, I am within a mile and a half of the gas station. I know exactly where I am. 
but I've also got a sleeping three-and-a-half or four-year-old kid in the sidecar, and I'm not about to carry him a mile and a half. And so I get off the bike and take off my helmet, and there's enough traffic on this uh, secondary road that I'm pretty confident that I'll be able to flag someone down that'll go down there and get me a gallon of gas, and who knows, maybe they've got one in their trunk. Whatever the case may be, there's a lot of farmland nearby. But the place I was at, nobody was home, so I couldn't ask if I could use the gas from their lawnmower. And uh, certainly within six or seven minutes, a car stops. Uh, the fairly current Cadillac, there's a whole family. It's a Sunday afternoon. They're probably out for a Sunday uh, dinner drive or whatever. And uh, I explain the situation, and, and they're all too willing to help me. And I offered them some money. So, no, 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 we'll go get the gas. We'll come back. And so, again, I know it's about a mile and a half down the road to really three gas stations. There's a small development down there, a hardware store, a bunch of other stuff, so a few restaurants, no shortage of things that one might need. And I figured, all right, I'll be back in 15 or 20 minutes at the most. Ten minutes goes by, 15 minutes goes by, Sam's woken up. We're just sitting on the side of the road uh, doing father-son things. 20 minutes goes by, 25 minutes goes by, and I'm thinking, you know, I was 100% sure that the right people stopped and that they were going to be as back <laughs> quick as they could. But here it is at the half hour point and they're not back yet. And, you know, I got a kid here and I got to solve this problem. And, um, and this is pre cell phone. Uh, Cause this is 26 years ago. And um, so I get back out to the edge of the road and start trying to flag cars down. And I, another three or four minutes, I flag somebody down and just as they are pulling over, this Cadillac comes in from the other direction about 40 minutes. And I, a big smile on their face, and so I tell the car that just stopped up, looks like my problem has been solved with the original people. Thank you for stopping. And I go over to them, and they can't apologize enough for how long this has taken. And I'm saying, look, you came back. I thought you were going to come back. I'm sort of shocked that it took so long. What was the problem? And they said, well, we went to all the gas stations, and nobody had a gas can to loan us. Nobody had a gas can to sell us. We went to the hardware store, and while they were open, they were out of gas cans except for these big, expensive five-gallon cans. So they went to the pizza shop across the street because the guy himself used to work at a uh, pizza shop when he was a kid, and he said, we get sauce in these, you know, one-and-a-half-gallon plastic containers. <clears throat> and he went in and pled my case and said, I need one of these containers so I can get some gas for this guy. So they had one that was almost empty. They dumped it in the hold. They washed it out for it, gave him this plastic jar and the lid, and he takes that to the gas station. Totally not where I'd want to be carrying a gallon of gas. Um, these things can dissolve sometimes, but nonetheless, they came back with a gallon of gas and a pizza sauce jar. <laughs> and, uh, and we got most of that gallon of gas because it's got a wide lid into the tank without too much mess, and they brought a bunch of napkins anticipating that. And uh, they wouldn't accept a penny from me. And, uh, you know, 10 minutes later, I'm down the road at the gas station after getting Sam buckled back in and my gear back on and uh, topping off the tank. And, um, you know, it's just I've always enjoyed helping other people on the side of the road. Um, everyone we've ever sold a newer used motorcycle to, including non-BMWs, as long as I've had a cell phone, has been given my cell phone number so that if they have a problem, that can't be resolved by roadside assistance or their insurance coverage or something like that, and they're stuck on the side of the road, some type of emergency, 
You're welcome to call or text me at any time of the day, and I don't get many calls, but I'm happy to help those people. So uh, that's one. Uh, the other one that I can tell that is short goes back to a um, a trip up to the Finger Lakes BMW Rally in Watkins Glen. Um, just about, let's see, pandemic two years, um, five years ago, I had an opportunity to buy back one of the 1995s that we sold. Actually, it was a special one. It was the next to the last bike. I joke it was the first last bike I got to buy from BMW. And um, it did need a lot of service. Um, we did a little bit of service to it. And um, I said, you know what? It's been a while since I took a completely naked uh, airhead up to the Finger Lakes Rally, so I'm going to ride. And so three days after I bought this bike, I uh, ride up to the rally, and I have a great ride up. I take the long way, spending a lot of time going uh, east and west to eventually make northward progress. <clears throat> uh, get up there on a Thursday evening, check into my hotel. Um, the next morning, go out for a nice breakfast ride, get to visit a local library that had never been open on Labor Day weekend, this old historic building in a little town down the road from um, Watkins Glen. And uh, I come out of the library, and my bike doesn't start. And I haven't even been to the rally yet, and because the rally essentially starts at noon on Friday. And uh, so I do some troubleshooting that's cranking uh, intermittently, and eventually decide that I've got a bad starter protection relay. So off comes the tank. I confirm that. There's a way to bypass it. And uh, I start the bike up. Great. I figured, you know, if necessary, I'll do this 100 times over the weekend, but I may stop a little bit less. And um, I'm heading back to my hotel before I head to the rally. Get to the hotel. Uh, come back out. I've already got a couple of uh, wires dangling out underside the tank so I can do this little uh, short circuit without having to take the tank off the next time. And um, come back out, and it won't start. So off comes the tank again, and uh, my starter protection relay has completely died now. Short circuiting is not part of the problem, but in the process, it took the starter motor out with it. So I'm going crud. And... Uh, but the part I like about this is that it was early on a Friday afternoon, and I picked up the phone, called Bob's BMW. <laughs> I was just going to say, yes. And I said, guys, so this is what's going on. And I said, so uh, we normally have these parts in stock, do we? And they five minutes later came back and said, yep, got both in stock, new starter motor, starter protection relay. Um, we'll send you some extra fuses and all that stuff. But this is going to show up on a Saturday delivery. Saturday deliveries aren't guaranteed for 10 o'clock in the morning. They can show up any time in the early afternoon. I'd like to get this solved as soon as possible so I could uh, go enjoy the rally, do some more riding, you know, eventually ride home on Monday, all of that stuff. So I said, let's make it uh, Saturday morning. Um, please call FedEx and let them know that I want to pick it up at the airport. The airport was about 20 miles down the road, um, so I'm not waiting for it. And I'm going to uh, figure out how to rent a car and drive down there myself um, and uh, check in with those people, let them know who I am, what's coming in, so they can flag that box. So I called uh, local Hertz or Avis, and they came and picked me up at the hotel. And uh, I got a rental car and uh, then drove down to the airport. And they said, yeah, our flight comes in about 7 in the morning. 
by 8 o'clock, we've got that plane unloaded. Why don't you come by about 8.30? So my breakfast ride the next morning turned into a breakfast drive. And we take so many of your plans off the table. Went off at the complete opposite direction. Had a nice breakfast drive that morning. Um, hit the airport about a quarter to nine. My box was waiting at the front counter. Went back to the hotel. Did my repairs. Everything's good. Now I got to go back to the airport to return the rental car. And uh, was going to take a cab back and just happened to get lucky as I was heading down there. Somebody else was picking up something at FedEx um, on their motorcycle. And um, I asked that they'd give me a ride back, and they said, sure. And luckily, they had a helmet. So um, I got a ride back to the hotel on the back of somebody's bike, something I haven't done in decades, and uh, got to get back on my bike. But it's now dinner time on Saturday night. And uh, a couple of the other people that I had met up at the rally, we decided to go out for a dinner ride. And uh, the next morning, wake up and it's raining. And I'm going, you know, I'm not sure I want to go to the rally for a rainy day. I think maybe it's just time to head uh, south. And so I checked out early, packed up my motorcycle, and got about uh, 60 miles down the road. Had time to top off my tank. And I pull in, and there's a longtime friend. It's still raining. His bike is parked by the pumps, and he's having a cigar over by the uh, the, the convenience store gas station uh, office. And I go over and I talk to John. And we just get to chat, and I says, "You look like you're John. You actually look like you're hanging out." And he said, "Well, I am. I've been playing with my weather application, and this storm front should pass pretty quickly, and I'll be able to make a clean shot to this little town. And I can't remember the name of it at the moment, but it was in Pennsylvania." And he said, you should join me, Bob. You don't have to be home tonight. And I said, well, you know, I can be home in about four hours. And, you know, I'll wake up with my wife on uh, Monday morning and it'll just be a good day. And he said, yeah, but this place is pretty special and there's a really good diner there. And I said, you know, I've been meaning to stop by that diner for years. And so sure enough, the rain stopped in about 30 minutes, as he predicted. And uh, we got on our bikes and we rode to that uh, town and they had one room left for me. And we went out and had a great steak and spent the evening walking around the town and exploring it. And the next morning, we got to go to uh, breakfast at this fabulous little old stainless steel diner and uh, went our separate ways after breakfast. And See? I've been back to that, that hotel and that diner several times since then. So those are two of my breakdown stories. Uh, there's another one, maybe some other time I'll get to share for a different podcast um, that is much longer, more drawn out. Um, that involved, and, and it was repeated uh, failure on my old K-bike on a full cross-country trip. And by the fourth uh, repair attempt, I finally came up with a uh, off-the-normal-list repair and uh, continued and made it to the West Coast and made it back to the East Coast. Well, your, your last story there brings up a, a good point and something that <clears throat> I've always believed is true is that uh, when you do have a breakdown on a motorcycle or sometimes maybe a car or whatever it is, uh, the circumstances that arise out of that uh, are often fortuitous and wouldn't have happened to begin with uh, in the first place. So I've always tried to look at those kind of events as opportunities uh, for things to happen. Uh, in your case, you spent some time with a buddy and got to do something else that you probably wouldn't have done otherwise. Uh, because you were planning to go to the rally all the time. So, you know, right. that's the classic, you know, making uh, lemonade out, out, out of lemons. Okay. Yep, 
the icing on the cake on that one was that instead of spending the next three or four hours riding home in the rain, because the, the front was all the way down to Maryland. Yeah. Um, the next day when we went our separate ways, we both had this beautiful ride home um, in clear weather and, uh, you know, upper 60s temperatures. There you go. That's the way to do it. Okay, so Bob Hennig of Bob's BMW. Uh, what bike or, uh, or uh, yeah, let me just say it this way. What motorcycle outside of the BMW airhead world or BMW world uh, is your, uh, that is, I guess I could say is your favorite? If you if you were if you had to ride a non BMW uh, and you were enthusiastic about it, what what is that motorcycle? That's a very difficult question to answer these days. Um, it was difficult twenty years ago. Um, I might have been able to answer it easily uh, forty or fifty years ago. Um, my first bike was a Suzuki two fifty. My next bike ended up being an R seventy five slash five, which I mentioned before, but it could have been a Honda. 750 Sport, um, and who knows where my life would have gone. Right. But um, in terms of vintage, the machines that have interested me the most over the last um, four or five decades that I've had a chance to ride a few times but never owned has been Vincent. Um, And they are the Jaguar of motorcycle world. They are not the easiest things to maintain, care for. Um, but I've got a couple of friends that have ridden theirs cross-country without missing a beat, so I know that they can be made dependable. Um, if I were picking something new in the marketplace today that appeals to what I like about riding um, and was modern, I would be somewhere between an Indian and a Ducati. <laughs> so, that is, that, that is a, a big canyon. Well, and and I've always liked what Ducati has done in the way of styling. Sure. Uh, in terms of uh, customer base from the business side or enthusiast base from the enthusiast side, they have an equally loyal following, as does BMW. Um, on the Indian side, um, I've never been completely enamored with American motorcycles, um, but their history is pretty deep and long, and I've had always wanted to own an old American motorcycle and didn't want it to be a Harley-Davidson because it seemed everyone was collecting Harleys. And from an historical standpoint, from a technological standpoint, um, from a winning races standpoint, Indian was always the predominant brand out there. That's true. It's all politics and a war that caused Harley to survive and Indian to, to vanish for a period of time. Well, do you, think, do you think you'll get one of those in uh, the near future? Uh I, I honestly can't answer that question. What I can <laughs> is that uh, all that caused me, um, uh, it's probably a dozen years ago, came out of the Otis Chandler collection. He was the publisher of the Los Angeles Times. And I'd gone to this auction after his death um, because a friend wanted me to help him uh, bid on a 1923 or 24 R32 that was in the auction. And it was a piece of crap. And he didn't get it. Somebody spent twice as much money as he had to but there was a 94 to 96% all original uh, 1913 Indian single cylinder in that auction. Wow. Oh. And I left with it. Wow. I like today. And so that's my connection to Indian. So when occasionally people see me wearing my wonderful Indian uh, sweatshirt that is of modern uh, uh, vintage, um, and I get asked, well, wait a minute, 
how come you're not wearing a BMW? <laughs> right. Indian. And uh, so, um, but, you know, there are so many great motorcycles out there today. BMW, I think, is still um, the best motorcycle across all possible measurements or KPIs, whatever you want to call it, on average, that is made in the world today. But that doesn't mean it fits everyone. It doesn't mean everyone is excited by the looks of any model. It's a very personal choice. If I were in the market today, um, I would want to do what we tell our customers to do all the time, ride as many bikes as possible in the shortest period of time as possible and decide which one is best for you at this point in your life. I can certainly tell, I hope it's a BMW that we offer new or used, um, but it could be a used Indian or Harley Davidson or Ducati or KTM or Honda that we also have in our show for. Uh, so I would enjoy me now. Okay, Bob, last question. Okay. Every, everybody wants to know, uh, and I'm sure you'll be getting emails and, and phone calls uh, after answering this question. Uh, what oil does Bob Hennig use in his airheads? Um, I use BMW oil. There you go. Okay, uh, just that simple. And, and I do that for two reasons. Uh, and yes, I get it a little bit cheaper than uh, my customers do, but that's not the leading reason, is that BMW still formulates their oil for their motorcycles, whether they're brand-new motorcycles or whether they're 50-year-old motorcycles. And when you go out and buy Castrol GTX, it's not formulated for your motorcycle. It's formulated for the average car. And so that little bit of difference, I think, brings something to the table. And um, whether you're under warranty or not, using a manufacturer's oil is always a smart decision from a consumer standpoint because under warranty, it could make a big difference. Outside of warranty, it could help make a difference in terms of getting a manufacturer to help you out in a goodwill situation. Yep. If you're going cheap oil filters and cheap oil, um, why would they want to help you out? So, But I've, I've always used BMW oil um, as long as I've been in the business. Uh, there was a time we used to sell Castrol GTX uh, for our uh, customers that were looking to save a few dollars, but we eventually decided that that was doing them a disservice um, because – most oils out there aren't formulated for motorcycles. And we do carry a couple of the other brands of motorcycle oil that are formulated for motorcycles. I just choose to use the BMW in my bikes. Bob, I uh, can't thank you enough for the time. Uh, these past uh, few visits we've had on the phone, uh, I've really enjoyed visiting you. I pre appreciate your uh, candid answers, your, th your thoughtful answers to the questions. I know folks are really going to uh, I have really enjoyed uh, listening to our conversation these past few hours. So much thanks again, and uh, in all honesty, keep up the great work and, and continued success. Thank you very much, Darren. It's been an honor and a pleasure to be uh, interviewed and to share uh, what's running around my brain when it comes to BMW motorcycles and the sport and the business, and I look forward to crossing paths again soon. Big thanks to Bob for taking all the time to visit with us on both these episodes. Truly a valued and trusted friend to all BMW motorcycle riders and enthusiasts. The Airheads 247 podcast is distributed and produced by From Off Productions. Our theme music is from Jimbo Mathis. You can find him on the web at therealjimbomathis.com. 
Our producer engineer is Jeff Glover. I'm Darren Dorton. Look forward to catching up with you next time.